0: I'm to go
1: So before we get started, we're gonna do a little object lesson. Um, and I've already been blessed to be with you today, but the word of the Lord laid on my heart was a huge blessing to me, and I hope I'll be able to share it with you. Okay? So I want to ask you, Jenny, are you near to me or far away from me? Okay? Christian, are you near to me or far away from me? Okay. Is my house near or far from me? Far? Is the city of Detroit near or far from me? Is the city of London near or far from me? Very far. All right. So based on that object, lesson, what we just did, that little description then. Detroit and London are far from me. But we can see there's a big difference there, Right? And Jenny and Christian are near to me, but we can see that there is a difference there. I submit to you that people usually call far away things that are harder to get to, or maybe impossible to get to. Today, we're going to look at that which is not so far away, but often is mistaken as far away. And so the sermon title is, Not So Far Away. Being a member of the kingdom of God is often broken down into sort of like two eras, if you will, and they're relatively long periods of time. There was an era where they were waiting for the Messiah to make his first appearance. And then there is an era now where we are waiting for the Messiah's return. We know that since Jesus' crucifixion, it's been almost 2,000 years, coming up on 2,000 years. And since then, People who know the Lord, love the Lord, who are part of the kingdom of God have been waiting for Jesus' return. He said, I will return. I go to prepare a place for where I will return and take you there to be with me. Previous to that, they were waiting on the Messiah. I submit to you that we can learn something about how you wait for the Lord by looking at how people waited for the Lord the first time. We would naturally want to look at somebody like John the Baptist, who was waiting for the Lord to come on the scene. John the Baptist was waiting, and he was excited, and he was serving the Lord and so on like that. But John had kind of a leg up. It was a little unfair because he, he was born under mysterious circumstances. His dad was made mute while they waited for him to be born because he was not really trusting in the Lord. Uh, his mother and his father both sort of prophesied amazing things about his life. So that, that's not really fair. I submit to you, to get a better picture, we'd have to go back further, at least back to Malachi, which was 400 years before the birth of Christ, the last known prophet declared on behalf of the Lord. And so they were waiting in a time when things were not so good, a time when they didn't know how long it would be. It could be weeks or months or years or decades or centuries before Jesus would make his appearance, and they didn't know exactly what it was going to be like, but they were learning a little bit about what it was going to be like. Maybe we should look at a day when things looked bleak on the earth, not so bleak that somebody's building a boat to save a small remnant of mankind, but pretty bleak. Like a lot of people are doing what they shouldn't be doing. Some people are waiting for the Lord's to return, and many are not. And so a time like that would be like Jeremiah's time. And I'll show you some examples of why that's true when we actually look at the text. If we look at a day like that, then that would be a day not entirely unlike today. Do you agree? And we could look at somebody in that day and what they said about and what they lived as they were waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. And by that, learn something about how we ought to live or how we could live anyway as we're waiting for the second coming of the Messiah. Okay, so we're going to look at a text today. It's an Old Testament text. And uh, would you get excited with me? Say amen something as we go to Jeremiah chapter 33. Amen. So this is the word of God in this moment. uh, Our lives are prone to be altered. So I hope you come expecting that God may say something. Uh, We're going to read from Jeremiah chapter 33, sorry, 33, beginning in verse 14, and we'll read through 26. I will share two other short texts as we go through. I will just share them. You won't have to flip to them necessarily. And then I'll sort of reference some teachings that are sort of prime to Christianity, that you might know, you might kind of recognize them as things that we Christians know or accept to be true. Um, and they come directly from scripture and I'll sort of tell you where they come from. But again, we won't go there and read those things. So as we go through, I'm going to expose Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 14. Here we go. He says, behold, or look here, pay attention to this. Days are coming, declares the Lord. This is what God says. Days are coming when I will fulfill the good, good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, when you see those phrases, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the house of Israel, who was Israel? Does anybody remember? Who got the name Israel? Uh, Jacob. Ja- Jacob, right? So his name was changed to Israel after God gave <laughs> him great promises about creating a kingdom out of him and so on. And so when you see the words, the house of Israel, realize we're talking about God's people, God's kingdom, God's kingdom, the people that God has chosen for himself. And then the house of Judah, the house of Judah uh, was the biggest tribe, if you will, and most prominent tribe, and they served most prominently, and Jerusalem sat inside that border. Um, but in this day, when Jeremiah is writing, the house of Judah is in big trouble. Jerusalem is in big trouble. Jeremiah is actually arrested and being held in the courtyard of the king, who is in Jerusalem and who is of Judah, because he prophesied the destruction of the kingdom of Israel. He has already said that God is going to visit discipline on the people of God and the, the kingdom will essentially become no more a kingdom. And they didn't like that prophecy. The other prophets were saying, oh, no, kingdom's going to do great, whatever. And Jeremiah was the, the kind of the sole holdout there in the capital telling them it's, it's coming. God is going to punish us for our idolatry. And, and the, in Jerusalem, essentially, as we know, it will be no more. And so he's captive. In the courtyard there, but he still has the ability to speak to the king and the king's household because he's in the castle. And so he, he's prophesying. He says, this declares the Lord, I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Jesus. Now, so now this sounds like it's going to be a better prophecy. And my, one might even be thinking he's going to prophesy in a way that's going to get him out of hot water, right? He's going to get to get out of the courtyard because he's changing his tone after he said he was going to destroy, um, all of Israel. Now he's kind of turning it back the other way. He says, in those days, and at that time, this is so he, Jeremiah is the one saying it, but he's saying it on behalf of God. He's saying God said this. Remember that phrase, declares the Lord. In those days, and that at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. There's several things to see. The first thing he says, the branch of David will spring forth. Okay, so that phrase there is I mean, it's going to just pop up and you almost could say pop up seemingly out of nowhere. And so that's it. It's a term that indicates we're not going to get another king immediately. That's going to be on the throne forever, but there's going to be one coming. That's going to be a righteous branch of David. It's going to kind of spring forth and it says, and he shall execute justice. And that means that he will bring justice and then he will control justice and he will determine how justice goes and how it doesn't go. So he's going to have the complete origination and control of justice on the earth. And it says and he will control righteousness on the earth. And if you have control of righteousness, then you get to decide who has righteousness and who doesn't have righteousness. And you can decide what is righteousness and what isn't righteousness. And so this is a pretty big statement about the branch of David that will spring forth and what control he will have. Verse 16 says, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. That wasn't looking imminent. And now because of what he just said about the branch springing forth kind of unknown, we think maybe these days are not the immediate days. And we start to realize Jeremiah is not prophesying about saving Israel from their punishment that's coming. He's prophesying about a return or restoring of at least these two families, these two houses the house of Israel in general, and the house of Judah. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety, and this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And that's interesting, concerning, you know, the, test, the teaching of the New Testament, that Jesus, uh, essentially Jesus, became sin for us, that we might have the righteousness of God through him. Second Corinthians 5.21. And so Jesus who would be the Messiah, and they didn't know the name Jesus. They only knew that he was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He would have these qualities, and one of them would be, he would bring safety finally to Judah, safety finally to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, the people of God, the house of Israel, the people of God, would be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Verse 17, for thus says the Lord, so he's saying, God continues to say, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Notice that that is actually a combination statement, because what house does David come from? The house of Judah, right? The first king of Israel was Saul, and he was from the house of Benjamin. And basically he blew it. He wandered from the Lord. He began to, What it was interesting too when you think about this, because one of his most extreme cri- crimes was he took the job of the Levitical priest in sacrificing before a battle because Samuel was too slow in coming, and he was impatient and wanted to get the fight started. It's one of the great crimes. And so he took a job from the house of the Levites, uh, which was not his job to sacrifice to God. And because of what he had done, and because of the travesties of justice, he was said he would no longer be king. And then David, who was the house of Judah, was raised up to replace him. It says in verse 17 again, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare prepare sacrifices continually. And that word continually there could be interpreted eternally. And so the sense of it is there is a man coming who can do these two jobs, be king of Israel forever, and be the lead priest forever. Okay, And so because we know these are forever acts, then we can take the context of the sacrifices. They don't have to literally be grain offerings, or literally be uh, sacrifices, uh, burnt offerings, but they are offerings acceptable to God forever. And so he's talking about a lead priest, if you will, who will lead all of these new Levitical priests to do offerings to God acceptable forever. Verse 19 says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for day and my covenant for night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time. In other words, if you can change the way creation works so much that you know we go halfway through the day and then have a whole night and then halfway through the day again, or that they don't follow one after the other as I have appointed them, God says. Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. In other words, he's saying, let all creation testify. I've set that up this way. And here's what I've set up this way in the kingdom of God, in the spiritual kingdom. There will always be a man on the throne of David. There will always be a priest to offer acceptable sacrifices to me. I've set that up just with the same firmness as the foundation of of creation. So this is an argument, they call it like an argument from the inane. He said, if that will work, this will work. You've messed up everything else. But day and night still happen the way I anointed them, the way I ordained them. And so will this promise to the priests and to David. You're asking yourself, why is this such a big deal? Why is God honing in on this at this time? And he's about to explain it to us. He says, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, have you not observed what this people have spoken? Saying, the two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them. So the question mark there is attached to, have you not observed? The statement is, people were saying that these two families who were the height, if you will, of God's people, they were the supreme the house of Israel representing all of God's kingdom, which already we knew that had split and bad things had happened and people had fallen away and there was idolatry and already there were bad things amongst them. And so there was, Jeremiah himself was saying that God was going to cast off the house of Israel. And he says, and Jeremiah was saying that the king who was on the throne would fall because of his own idolatry, because of his evil. And so Jeremiah was the one prophesying. And now the, this is saying the people have begun to say, that God is going to cast off and walk away from this kingdom of God, which he set up, that Israel and the house of Judah will fall. And God is saying, have you not observed that the people are saying that? And then he says, thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, in other words, if they fall, if creation falls apart as I have set it up, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, if I hadn't done those things, if those things were not true, Then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, and you can read in that but, but it's not so. The way I've set things up, that is still the way they work. I have not broken my covenant with creation. That is still the way they work. He says, but I will restore, and I'll come back to that word in a second because it's huge, their fortunes and will have mercy on them. In other words, I will bring my people out. I will save my people. Now, that word restore is huge because in order to restore something, it first has to be broken. He's not talking about he's going to save them from the coming chastisement or save them from the coming punishment. He's not talking about he's going to save them from the bleak days that they must must basically suffer through. He's saying at the end of the appointed time, at the end of the appointed suffering, at the end of the appointed chastisement, then I will bring a time which I will fully restore my people to myself. And I will do that through this righteous branch of David who will execute both justice and righteousness on the earth. And he says, and I will have mercy on them. Okay, so there's several things you need to see, and I'm going to give you the three points up front, and then I'm going to come at them from the back, and you'll see what I mean when I show that. But the first point I want you to see is that this text, as well as pretty much the entire New Testament, says this about us, that we should live better, that we should live better. The second point, and pretty much the entire New Testament, says this, that we should believe longer. And the third point, and pretty much the entire New Testament, says that it's not that far away. Okay? So now let me show you how that comes out of here. So, Jeremiah is in a very rough time. They're going into the most bleak situation that they've ever seen. The nation is, the northern nation has already fallen, the southern nation is on the verge of it. And I want to say to you that going into the worst time you've ever faced, there is no better time to look forward to what God has promised coming true than when it headed into a dark and difficult time, perhaps even a chastisement by God. Now, our troubles come from a variety of sources. We bring them on ourselves. We, uh, The world brings them on us. People, family members, friends, the situation, falling apart, creation, tornadoes and earthquakes and floods. Troubles come from a variety of situations, a variety of causes, but going into a dark time, the darkest time you've ever seen, there's no better time than that to look forward to the promises that God has promised. The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the purposes of your heart from Psalm 37, four. And we look at the scripture in Romans that says, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I will be with you, Jesus said in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, 19 and 20. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, Romans eight thirty-eight, and so on. There's no better time than the darkest moments of your life to look at the promises of God. Jesus said, ultimately, I will come again and take you there with me also. We are living in the appointed hour for Jesus to be building the place that he will one day take us to. Yet when we face trouble and difficulty, we look at the trouble and difficulty. We begin to plot and plan and figure a way to make our lives as easy as possible to suffer the least amount. Listen to me. If I can say it, there's nothing I can say more clearly. You avoiding suffering is not the point of this lifetime. You could say, if you chose to look at it in the negative, that you avoiding suffering in eternity is the point of salvation we do not live our lives to avoid hell then or now it's not a motivator it shouldn't be a factor if you came to Jesus to avoid hell you may have what's considered to be essentially a trench salvation a foxhole salvation that will only last you until you face something that you perceive is like hell here on earth, and then you'll be so busy scrambling like an on-fire rat to get out of your difficulty that you will look completely away from the purpose for your life, which is to see the fulfillment of God's promises in you. And what does that look like? We are called to live better now, to do right now, to be the kind of person that models the character of Christ Now, to be his agents in executing justice and righteousness on the earth. But we get looking at the storm, we get looking at the difficulty, we get looking at the trouble. And we forget that the same God that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, because it says the Holy Spirit of God came and led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, And that's two entities there. It's not the Holy Spirit who tempted Jesus. God does not tempt. But the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. That same God is the same God who will crush the devil under his foot with completeness in eternity. And cause that same person who said, Well, if you'll worship me, I'll give you all this, to burn in hell forever. And in the wilderness, Jesus was wise enough and smart enough to know to choose God over the devil. And if he comes knocking, offering to make your suffering a little easier in this lifetime, I submit to you that you rebuke him, tell him to flee, and turn your attention to the God of heaven through his son Jesus Christ and live better. God illustrates how much he will spread his grace, the gifts that people do not deserve, the mercy that they are waiting for, how much he will spread his grace by referring to the multiplication of his people. This is a mission statement of God. It's the the great commission of the Old Testament. He wants to continue the process of expanding the kingdom so that he can display his grace, and don't forget this, and for man to fulfill his purpose. They would be the people that God will rise up they will be Jesus' representatives as they serve as Jesus is the king on the throne forever and as part of his kingdom. And Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing, and I glorify God every day. And he desired to see people saved. And he was on a great commission ministry from the moment he stepped foot on the earth. Not just once it became public. He was coming to win people to God. And if you are with God and in God, then that is what your life is about as well. Because God desires to spread his grace to as many people as time. That's the era that we live in. The era in which God is spreading his grace to as many people as will receive it. And to fulfill our purpose. Which was to have a right relationship with God. To be about the business of God. To be giving acceptable sacrifices to God. I've heard many motivations for the changes that people make in their lives seen people cut things out and add things in because it felt right. They did it for their kids. They, they were cost-cutting, saving money. They wanted to live longer. I mean, the list just goes on and on. The Lord is not slow about keeping His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, towards me, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what Peter wrote. And that chapter, that verse was written in the context of 2 Peter chapter 3 and he was talking about living faithfully for God as you await. And one of the greatest arguments that the enemy will make about God fulfilling his promises is to say, well, he hasn't done it yet. What makes you think he's going to? God cannot lie. God is not like man. He is not unrighteous. And no more could you change how the night and the day come and go, or how the stars move through the heavens, then you can change the fact that we are living in a period of grace in which man can be saved and become Levitical priests to God, offering up reasonable sacrifices, become servants to the King David, advancing the kingdom in every possible way. No more could you change that fact than you could change the night, the day, and the stars. It's a fact. Whether you believe it or not. This is the era in which we live. We are awaiting the second coming of the Messiah. And our lives, day one, from the moment we understand it, ought to be living better, advancing the kingdom of God. That's a fact. And before you start to say, I don't know my difficulty, I don't know my troubles, I don't know, I've got so much to overcome, I want you to think about Jeremiah, who's the one who brought these words to God's people in the face of persecution, in the face of tribulation, in the face of a conquering nation coming to wipe the nation of Israel off the face of the earth, preparing to be carried off. He'd already prophesied that the the good men would be all carried off into captivity and that the king would stand before the enemy king and answer for his crimes. He'd already prophesied all of that. And he said, nonetheless, you Israelites, nonetheless, you people of God, and of course, I'm paraphrasing, you live better because God will keep his promises. And when that time comes, Will there be faithfulness found on the earth? Second thing in there, I said was to believe longer. Now and again, baseball broadcasters will mention a a fabulous career of an old old story, long time ago. A a man named Christy Mathewson. Raise your hand if you know who Christy Mathewson was. Good, nobody knows. That's great. I didn't know either. This is the only story I know about him. Okay, he was a baseball player, a pitcher, in fact, Um, and he played for the New York Giants. He pitched and successfully won 37 games in the year 1908. So this story comes from a while back. But there is a rem- this remarkable man was admired on and off the field. Of all the stories attributed to Matheson, the only one that I know, concerns a highly contested baseball game. It was a deep fight, big deal, pennant race, when Christie was a runner on third base. The manager called for a squeeze play, that's when the runner on third base looks like they're going to go home on the hit, and they go too far as if they're not safe and could be tagged out. And then if the ball is kept at home, then they run back toward third. And if the ball is thrown to third, they run toward home. Meanwhile, the runner is going to first base, so the hope is that he will get to first base. If they make the throw to first base, the runner on third goes home, they score a run. If they don't make the throw to first base, the runner gets to first base, and the hope is that the runner on third will manage to get safe either back to third or to home. So Matthewson, being the difficult, strong player on the field that he was, he goes for it. He runs out there, and he puts himself out there. The opportunity develops, and he slides into home plate, a big, long, stretched-out slide, and the catcher is there to make the tag. But such a cloud of dust has risen up from the field that the umpire was unable to make the call. He couldn't see whether Christie was tagged or not, and he was hesitating. An unprecedented conference began between all of the umpires on the field, and they got together, and they talked, and they argued, and they finally agreed that Christie should make the decision. That he should decide whether he was safe or out. Christy being the fierce competitor that he was, he walked around home plate, adjusting his trousers, brushing himself off. Finally, he took his hat off and he said, "He got me." Later in the dressing room, his teammates asked him, "Why why did you divulge the fact that he tagged you?" Whereupon he promptly replied, "I am an elder in the Presbyterian Church. We need to believe longer. Stop making your integrity, your right living, your determined behavior, your service of the Lord contingent upon what's happening right now. You need to believe through getting tagged out at home. You need to believe through your health concerns, your financial concerns, your relationship concerns. You need to be looking for the promises of God. What if you are spewing a bunch of obscenity because your situation is really tough or causing physical harm to you or your surroundings the moment that Jesus returns? And for what? Because something broke? Or you stubbed your toe? Or your body wasn't functioning the way it wanted to? And Jesus jumps right in between you and the wall that you're about to punch or the thing you're about to throw or the, the just as you're about to scream the F word, and he's standing right there in your face. And you're like, ah, Jesus. You've got to believe longer. You've got to believe through the things that God is calling you to endure and the great successes that God is giving you to have. When you are trusting in God, you can realize that the outcome of this particular turn of events, the thing that you are facing right now, is not what matters most. It is how you endure it, how you live through it. It is your target and where you will arrive when it's over. And the promises of the Lord undergird everything that we are experiencing. God answers detractors to his plan. There are people who are saying, God is going to blow off Israel and Judah. Jeremiah even said they're going to be punished. They're falling from grace. There is no hope. But God answers detractors with plans that sometimes take generations to unfold. You're a follower of the Lord. You're devout. You could live your life a decade or five or seven. You could be martyred on the cross. You could be whipped to death. You could be burned alive. And your faith then could be replicated in your children who also may be burned alive. But your grandchildren could live in the kingdom of God in the presence of Jesus because as you faced persecution, you refused to quit and stood up for what you believed. That's why there is no greater multiplication of the kingdom of God than when the people are under persecution and being killed for their faith because they don't back down. The true Christians don't back down. And what, what shines brighter on the earth than a person who believes in the promises of God and continues to believe in the promise of God and live accordingly when faced with greater things than we think we could endure? That's the testimony of believers. God's plans sometimes take a long time to unfold. Generations. Now 2,000 years almost since Jesus left and promised he was coming back. And he is coming back. And we must trust in God's plans even when we cannot see them. And we are to work for the long game when he so leads. In other words, in the darkest moments of your life, your eyes should be on the cross. I may die today, but if I do, I'll be translated immediately. And if I survive, I know tomorrow, as soon as I'm strong enough to get up, I'll be walking for Jesus. And if I lose my voice, I'll stop speaking, but I'll st- I'll learn to sign and tell people about Jesus. That ought to be our attitude. God's plans are long and drawn out. I had an experience like this in my own life. Uh, when I was unsaved and didn't know Jesus, and my wife was unsaved and didn't know Jesus, we, came, we became pregnant with our second child. And we chose a name for her, Amalia. You know her. She sits right there, usually. Stands up here sometimes. We chose the name Amalia. Now, we didn't choose it because it meant anything. We chose it because uh, maybe about three reasons. Number one, it started with an A.
0: We didn't want to give her a name that
1: started with a B, because then she'd feel second best, because we didn't with an A. We thought maybe a name with an A would be good. And we realized we were in trap, because then everybody had to have an A, right? So, but anyway, so we, that was one reason. The second reason was because it, was, it sounded free.
0: We liked the sound of it
1: third reason was that, No, we had never known anybody named Amalia, and we wanted a unique child. We wanted somebody who would live their own life and not be forced into a mold by anyone else. fourth reason was it was a name that I had invented in the game that I used to play and still play. And so those are the reasons. Are any of those reasons good reasons to choose the name for your child? I don't know. Probably not. But we chose the name for that child while we were lost. Sherry was pregnant. And then while we were pregnant pregnant with that child, if I can take that liberty, technically she was pregnant, but I was with her, so we were going through it together. While we were pregnant with that child, God saved us. We came to faith. We both believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we began to live in the kingdom of God. And for me, when I when I became a follower of the Lord, it was everything to me. I realized that everything that I up to that point had, I, I didn't feel like I had my wife because our marriage was a mess. I didn't feel like I had my kids because I'd already messed Alicia up pretty good by that time, and I was a little afraid of messing up the child that we would be called Molly. We had a boy named too, but we didn't. We did Could have been a boy, but it wasn't. So I didn't feel like I really had anything of value, and I was giving my entire self to God. And figured that after that, whatever He did, it was up to Him. My life was going to be completely different. So that was a work of God in me. That was an amazing work of God in me. Sherry waited until after she had the baby to be baptized because she didn't want to navigate the baptismal steps kind of like a walking beach ball, as women feel like they are, the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth month of their pregnancy. And fast forward 16 years, fast forward 16 years, Amalia's 16th Christmas with us. We bought her a laptop for Christmas, and I wanted to have something on there more than just a screensaver. And I thought, I'm going to see if we can put something on the screen. So I Googled the word Amalia. Amalia. There were seven pits. I don't know how many there are now, but at that time there were exactly seven. One of those seven said my name in Hebrew, and so I looked it up. And the word Amalia in Hebrew means a work of God. We chose her name as unsaved people, not knowing that God was going to save us. We were not yet considering being saved when we chose that name. And then God saved us. He made Amalia, who was a work of God, and then he did a work of God in me, and he did a work of God in her, and then 16 years later, in his grace, he told me that he had orchestrated our lives so that we would come to the moment of choosing that name while we were pregnant with the child that would have that name, and we would both get saved. God makes plans that sometimes take a long time to come to fruition, a long time to see. For 16 years, Amalia lived thinking her name name meant nothing. It had no meaning. It was a made-up word. And then when she got her laptop on her 16th Christmas with us, she found out that her name means a work of God, which by that time she was already saved, and she already knew she was a work of God. God's plans sometimes take a long time to become evident. In the meantime, you must live better and believe longer through everything that you endure. Sometimes a single principle, just one principle, empowers a lot of things, and one principle endures, or one principle empowers everything I've been talking about to this, the first two points. And it is that it's not so far away. These verses remind me of the actual dynamic that we live in. We are to pursue righteousness, and pursuing righteousness means to pursue his presence rather than to follow his rules or to navigate creation. People think to be righteous is to not lie, to not steal. All of those things are right. But you could not not lie, steal, murder, not be angry at anyone. You could get the list completely right. There was a a man in the New Testament that Jesus encountered, a rich man, and and, and he said he had kept all the commandments since his birth. And Jesus didn't contradict him. He said, okay, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor because he realized that his money had become an idol in his life. So you could do all those things right, navigate creation perfectly, and not become righteous. Righteous Righteousness is not that far away. It's not at the end of a long laundry list of things to do, because it isn't about doing at all. It's about being in relationship with Jesus. It's not about what to do or what not to do. These are not the greatest questions of our life. The only question that matters, according to John 3.17, is what are you going to do with the Son of God? Not did you lie, or did you steal, or did you murder, or did you scoff, but what are you going to do with the Son of God? And so, Jeremiah, as he's going into the worst times ever, is reminding us to live better and believe longer, because the kingdom of God The righteousness of God, it is not at the end of a successful war. It is not found in cutting out all of the idols or all the Baal or Asherah holes. It's not found in refusing to visit places that you shouldn't be. The righteousness of God is found in a right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, will you want to stop lying? Will you be convicted of avoiding your sin? Yes, because you want to live better. And you live better and believe longer because the gift is literally one millionth of that away. So small that you can't possibly perceive it. How far away is Jesus? So not far that you can't describe it in words. And so we live better and believe longer. It'll be good. That's what Jeremiah said. It'll be good. That day, it'll be good. He will provide and manage the justice and righteousness when the time comes. That's what he said. That's pretty cool because he's talking about the first coming of the Messiah. And you know who manages justice and righteousness now? Jesus. I have my own sense of justice, but I have long learned, when I was 25, I learned that my sense of justice is not the same as Jesus's. You can decide a lot of things you don't like in this lifetime. You can curse the storm, the very storm that will make you the person that you need to be. Our sense of justice is messed up. It has been since the fall. But a new sense of justice can be restored in us piece by piece, bit by bit, as our spirit comes alive again, restored. That's the word he used. What was broken, restored, born again, living for Jesus Exhibiting justice and righteousness, that's living better. Believing that we can do that and continue to do that throughout the ages, however long it takes until we come into His presence. Jeremiah said it'll be good, and I'm here to tell you it is good. And if you think it's not good, it's because you've not lived better and believed longer like you should have. It is good. It is good that you don't get to look at somebody else and decide when they're fundamentally wrong or saved. You don't want that responsibility. I don't want that responsibility. We are not to pin down because we don't want that responsibility. It has been, thank God, relieved from our shoulders. Jesus will decide. You don't have to do it. Your whole job is to deliver the gospel, live better, believe longer, and deliver the gospel because we live in an age of grace that as many people as possible might be saved. Live in love. My illustration for this last point comes from Galatians 6, 7 through 10. I'm just going to read it. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not give, if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And I say do that because you are righteous, and because you have left justice in the hands of the Lord. You do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. I said there were three points, I've given you them, and now our conclusion. Acts chapter 13 says this in verses 22 and 23, and this is Paul speaking when they've come into the city of Antioch, which you know becomes one of the greatest Christian centers in the early world, or or if you don't, you know it now. And Paul, as part of his little speech to them, he says this, he says, After he had removed him, that's referring to Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel, a Savior, Jesus. When he was saying he was going to bring a righteous, just branch out of David, he was talking about Jesus. Paul knew it. The early church knew it. Christianity has always known it. And that king is our king because we have become the house of Israel in faith. But out of that, God would raise up Levitical priests. We're not talking about priests who wear a collar or a robe. We're talking about you and me. And we will be equipped to forever give him sacrifices, like that which is talked about in Romans 2, Romans 12:2, your body as a righteous sacrifice to the Lord, like that which is talked about in singing praises to God continually, and our prayers never ceasing. We have been given the authority and the power to act in the kingdom of God to do as liturgical priests. And the number is endless. more may come in. But notice that Jeremiah looked forward through difficulty, through the worst times. He looked across time. He insisted on living better, on believing longer, and knowing that the kingdom was not that far away, even though he would be unlikely to see it in his lifetime as we see it, or as those who were alive when Jesus came saw it, he could see it across time and through, and it was right there in him, and he lived with the Lord, speaking what the Lord would have him to speak. And he was able to say, thus saith the Lord. Let us not forget that we live in the second period of faith. When we are not waiting for his first appearance to see his face for the first time among men. But we are waiting for the second coming. The first coming has already been testified testified to by miracles, including the resurrection. Live better. Believe longer. It's not that far away. The kingdom of God is among you. The New American Standard Bible translates a certain verse, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And the King James translates the same verse, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. That word in your midst, within you, is a word in the Greek language that can be translated several different ways, in you, among you, between you, within you. The kingdom of God is right here, right now. It's not something that's far away. The question is, will you be in it? Will you live better? Will you believe longer? Will you realize it's not far away? Wait on the promises of God. In that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But for some, it will be terrible. A horrible thing to have to bow to the king that they always knew in the back of their minds would come once and for all to judge all mankind. And now they're bowing before him in pity and tears and weeping and sorrow and anger because it's Jesus. They always said it was Jesus and now it is Jesus and I didn't live better and I didn't believe. But for those who do live better, and believe longer, waiting on the promises. It will not be such a surprise. We will be ready, because we have been expecting, realizing all the while, that it was not that far away. How about you?